Welcome to episode 20 of the Scrum Dynamics podcast. The purpose of this podcast is to help every Microsoft customer and partner successfully use the Scrum framework to implement Dynamics 365. Welcome and Happy New Year. I'm your Scrum Dynamics podcast host, Neil Benson. I'm thrilled that we're back after the Christmas and New Year holiday season. I took a break from my current Dynamics 365 project to enjoy some time with my family and to recharge my batteries. I also took a couple of courses to set me up for 2019. I joined Pat Flynn from the Smart Passive Income podcast in taking Michael Hyatt's Best Year Ever course. And I also finished Marie Forleo's Copy Cure course. Both of those were great investments and I'm hoping you're making plans to invest in yourself in 2019 too. In today's show, I'm joined by Seth Bacon. Seth is a manager at RSM US, a global tax audit and consulting firm. A few years ago, Seth made the transition from accounting into business applications, and he's a Dynamics 365 consultant and trainer today. Seth and I met at the Dynamics 365 User Group Summit recently, and it was my pleasure to have him on the show to discuss his adoption of the Scrum framework on his Dynamics 365 projects. But just before we bring Seth in, I'd like to thank our sponsor for this episode, MSCRMAddons.com. A few years ago, I was running a Dynamics CRM project at American Homes for Rent and we needed to generate 50,000 rental renewal leases in six weeks' time. And if we couldn't automate the process, we'd have to hire hundreds of temporary staff. Using Documents Core Pack from MS CRM add-ons, we were able to merge CRM data into Word templates and use Smart Logic to include different dependencies, depending upon the renter's state, and whether they had a pet, and whether there was a rent increase, and so on. All the documents were converted into PDF files, attached to email messages, sent to the renters, and copies were stored in SharePoint. Thanks to Christian, Michael, and the team at MS Serum Add-ons. You can find out more at msserum-addons.com. Let's get on with the show. Oh, welcome to the show, Seth Bacon. It's great to have you on board. Thanks, Neil. Yeah, no, it's great to connect with you again. So a quick intro on myself. I've been with RSM, manager here in the Seattle office, and focusing on delivering Dynamics customer engagement. And I've been doing that on the consulting side as a partner and doing implementations for the last six years. Prior to doing that, I was actually, undergrad was in accounting and had the opportunity to transition from the accounting team at a client to the IT team. I was a little too creative as an accountant and they don't tend to like creative accountants usually. So <laughs> it's been neat being a part of a, an accounting firm, I, I think pushes you, which is also really neat. It helps you understand the importance of independence. And when you talked about from a CRM side, you can typically do pretty much everything. But as soon as you start touching the financial statements, that's a big no-no. So I had the opportunity to take sort of my understanding of debits and credits, being able to help with the reporting for the CFO and the CEO, because I understood sort of the backend numbers, how it was going to impact that. It was kind of a neat transition and had the opportunity to learn on the job. And this is why I started the Bacon Bites is a lot of people's stories is around are around this. They're a power user in the system. And because they understand reporting and because they understand how to get things out of the system, all of a sudden they're thrust into this position of managing the system now. Yeah. So tell me more about Bacon Bites. That's your blog? Yeah. So the baconbites.com is a blog I started. It was something that came out of a training that I've led the last three years at Summit, which is a two-day, all-day uh, training for new administrators. And so these new administrators are coming on. And again, they're often either from the accounting department or it's somebody from operations or a sales guy that understands IT type of thing. And so how do these individuals that have been tapped on the shoulder either as as a power user that needs to help manage the system or somebody that's going to take over the system as a system administrator. And so often they have no idea what it looks like for 
to work in the IT department because they knew operations or they knew sales or they knew accounting or they knew they knew their day job. And all of a sudden they were good at doing this other part. And so making that transition. And so the Bacon Bites is taking this two-day training and CRM is such a big product now that you can't learn everything. And so how do I break that into small bite-sized bits? And with the last name Bacon, I had to do a play on words there. And so <laughs> trying to do eight-minute videos and stuff like that so people can quickly get in, get the content, and then and then move on and implement. It's an opportunity to give back and give back to the community. And that's something that RSM is very much about is pursuing your passions and mind leading training and engaging people and then helping to educate people. And so that's my passion in there. Oh, good stuff. Let's make sure in the show notes, we'll link out to Bacon Bites and the training opportunities that, that you might still have on offer. Yeah, there's a couple of virtual ones coming up in February and then looking to schedule some more in March through the Dynamics communities. I've um, I found public sector organizations can struggle a little bit with an agile approach, particularly when it comes to proposing a, an agile approach because they structure their RFPs in such a way that you know they're looking for fixed, fixed price projects. They're typically written in such a way that there's a statement of requirements there and you've got to describe how you're going to fulfill each requirement. So it's, it's kind of a fixed scope and fixed price is their preference. How have you found it whenever you're developing business and, and selling those projects? Yeah, so it's been interesting. I, I think I've seen, we've seen a change. I mean, over the last two years, at my first project out here, they didn't have this concept of agile and Scrum, and we implemented it. And that was actually one of the more successful agile projects that we've had. It was a fairly large project. We delivered the minimum viable product within three three months of building, and it was all their feature sets. Again, as you referenced. When different departments or different agencies go out to bid, they have to build a whole piece. And so it's, hey, we need this functionality and we need all of it. And we have, we talked to the state legislation and they said we can have X number of dollars. And so we have to have, with X number of dollars, we have to meet this deliverable. One of the questions that I had submitted to Gus on his his podcast and when you had joined him was, how do you bid this? And I think it's still something that we struggle with is how do you help a, a prospect and, and through an RFP process, how do you help them understand that we're going to be able to deliver value sooner and, and ultimately the right product? Because often when get requirements are gathered, it was a year before the RFP actually came out. And so a lot of things have changed. And that's where an agile approach is important because we can pivot and, and turn and, and actually meet the needs. But it's still something we struggle with. But on this last RFP that we received, it was actually part of their RFP was, hey, we're going to use VSTS, Visual Studio Team Services, as part of the project, and we're going to do Agile. Yeah, that's uh, it's amazing to see that more and more clients are requesting that as their preferred approach. That's great to see, especially in public service, where I think they really need it. So, Government agencies tend to have a, uh, a set time. Everybody consistently comes in at the same time in the morning and leaves at the same time at night. And so it's very much a work-life balance, which is awesome when you're a part of those. It can also be a struggle if, if you have to burn hot for it a sprint so that way you can get something out the door and again it's one of those things that it kind of when you think about it, it actually fits well with scrum because it's it's something that's sustainable often there's a timeline that has to be met and so that can be a little challenging because again with agile and or i guess this is a question to you when you have defined deliverables at the beginning and you said okay this is what we need and when we need it by however you want to deliver that's fine you want to do waterfall awesome if you want to do agile sure whatever as long as it meets on April 1st that this deliverable is delivered. How do you manage to that and how do you manage past that? How do you guys handle that? So that's a great question. And we hear that quite a lot from, from our clients. And really what I try and do is is remind them that with the Scrum approach, the product owner is from, from their team. So they're going to be in charge of the scope of the project. They're going to be in charge of prioritization. They're going to be in charge of scheduling. So whatever they ask us to work on is what we're going to work on. Now you're right that we may not get it all done by when they 
everybody anticipates. You know, some things will take us longer than initially expected, but we'll know that much earlier in the project. I'll tend to encourage the product owner to try and prioritize the riskiest items first so that we get some learning so that we can then adapt our schedule and adapt our backlog in response to what we just learned in earlier sprints. It's not always up to the Microsoft partner to, to absolutely make an ironclad commitment that, yes, we'll meet your, your future requirements by a drop-dead date at a, you know, for a fixed price. But it's up to the client, in this case, you know, your public sector product owner, to manage that they're in, in control. And if you get a good, responsible product owner who's got the right authority and the right agile mindset, then that really works really well. And they really enjoy being in charge of those decision-making processes from sprint to sprint and taking ownership and accountability for the outcomes. And they also get covered in glory whenever it all goes well. Yeah. And I think they, there's two important parts there. One is the fact that you have a product owner that can make decisions. And I think that's very important, especially in the public sector, because you sometimes they have to do committees or something like that. And so setting up either a steering committee or something like that where, okay, if if you can't make this decision by yourself and for whatever reason, it has to be through a group of people that takes time and effort. And so it extends the project potentially um, because decisions aren't quickly made because we don't have a one product owner. We have a group of product owners. Yeah, I'm facing exactly that challenge. Um, in the current project, we've got a several committees. And what we do is just have a decision register. We log all our, our decisions in there. The project team has decided this. We're we're proceeding on that basis. If anybody wants to amend that decision to overrule it, then that's fine. You know, we'll have to address that in a future sprint. But we had to make some decisions quite quickly within the sprint to keep the pace going. We haven't really got time for delaying decisions until everybody's rubber stamped it before we proceed. We kind of just kind of have to make some nimble, lightweight decisions. And hopefully everybody's on board with that when, when those committees convene and <laughs> review the decisions that we've made. That seems to be working so far. Yeah. And do you find that you have to... When you start having multiple product owners, and again, it's not the the best practice, but sometimes the recommended practice is is not possible. Do you find that that adds additional overhead and documentation that, again, Agile, everybody thinks of it as having no documentation? Having a decision register there is great. So in the future, or even if it's ourselves, our future sales, we will look back and go, why did we do it that way? Who forced us to do it that way? What were the options that we explored? And what were the trade-offs that we had to make? And why did we choose that, that final option? So that will help us out. Or if it's somebody else doing support, maintenance, and enhancement later, they'll be able to see what those crazy people were thinking back in you know, 2018, 2019. I've never had that on a project where I'm doing support. <laughs> so that's a part of it. And then the other side is just the technical documentation. And so we use Snapshot tool to produce a full set of system documentation, in particular the data dictionary at the end of every sprint so that we can communicate all of our changes and all the new entities and relationships and fields that we created. So that kind of system documentation is there as well as the decision register about why we did it that crazy way. And then we just make sure that we've got you know every description for every, is filled in for every field and every entity and every view and every workflow. So again, we can trace that back and say, this field was added by this user story over here in the sprint. So we got that kind of traceability back there as well. Have you taken a, a similar approach or anything different? Yeah, no, I was. I think I've seen that approach be successful, especially sort of the the, the tail end there where you're defining defining what the definition of done is or writing, right? And so it was something I was listening to a couple of the, the podcasts that you guys have done already, and it's it's definitely important. And so, what was the decision? Why do we make the decision? And then documenting that because. Something that was defined as ready and had the acceptance criteria in there and it's been defined. And then being able to document why that changed through something like VSTS or, or JIRA is important. And I think that helps 
just keep my sanity and the clients and it just helps everybody at the end of the day, having that decision, those decisions that have been made, having the discussions. And it doesn't have to be heavy documentation. That's not documentation that you're going to print out and, and give to anybody necessarily, but it's something that when you go back and look at it, it's something you can reference and help under and jog your memory. And what I find is nobody's ever pulled it out in some kind of contractual battle and said, oh, look, let's refer back to the season register and see why it's this way or that way. But everybody knows that this stuff's being logged. So people are much less combative during the course of the project. People know that we're, we're logging all this stuff as we go along, and it's really for our own project team's benefit. And that just helps everybody relax and know that you know, we can change our mind. We, we're taking a note of when we change our mind, and that's really useful for us. So tell me a little bit about your, your the tools that you're using to manage some of your projects. You're using VSTS for the sounds of it. Yeah, so we're using VSTS and with regards to a tool, and that's kind of been our, our go-to. And to be honest, we've only I've only been involved in about three different projects where we've utilized a project management system. And again, uh, these projects tend to go anywhere from six to nine months or even to a year, depending on the length. So, But the last three, it's been incredible. I remember doing projects beforehand and we used to do, and we didn't call it agile, but we would do conference room pilots. And we just said, hey, this is a great way to do it. But it was never something that we're like, oh, this is part of a, a framework. But what that ended up doing, it was, it was when we were showing something, we couldn't say what we were going to show because we really hadn't defined the sprints yet or what we were going to deliver. And so essentially what we're just doing is sticking our finger in the air and saying, okay, which way is the wind blowing? Is this the right direction? Is the other way the right direction? Which way should we be sailing the ship? And so it's definitely been helpful to have something that's actually documented and saying, okay, we started with this. We're defining what we're going to work on. And so it just keeps everybody's sanity from the dev team to make sure that we say, okay, we're going to work through this together. Everybody's agreed that this is what we're going to tackle next. And then being able to, during the, the conference room pilots or the sprint reviews is to go back and just be able to show and say, okay, these are the different requirements, the different user stories, they relate to features. And so the only real system that we've used is VSTS internally for for managing user stories and epics and cases and bugs and issues. The other one that we have a whole dedicated application development team that actually writes code and they're using VSTS to, for code management. And that's something that we're looking to start integrating both of our teams together so that way we can more fully utilize a tool and work across sort of disciplines. And it's been neat. I'm excited about it. Yeah, so there's there's a whole series of best practices and, and emergent thinking around how to manage continuous integration using what's well, now Azure DevOps is the latest name for Visual Studio Team Services. Some of the MVPs that they have done some great work there. Well, Hamza has done some some awesome work in publishing some of his code snippets to help you with that that kind of transition and, and bring developers much closer into the requirements management system as well. So, Seth, are you inviting your customers to participate in those um, VSTS projects so they can comment and, and manage the backlog, or are you doing it on their behalf? Yeah, so we definitely invite them as part of it. And so the product owner, for sure, often some of the subject matter experts that the product owner is going to rely on to get answers for. That allows, uh, again, more visibility. They're not updating. They, they may create bugs. And part of when they create a bug is to go back and find the original user story. And that's been helpful, again, for just sort of that check saying, hey, this was this is a bug. Well, it was never actually supposed to do that. And it's funny. I often give Microsoft a hard time. Well, that's a feature. And it feels a whole lot like a bug. But anyways, being able to go back and say, hey, this doesn't perform the way it's it's expected to as part of the testing and they're able to the comment there. And part of that is to go back and find the requirement and understand what the acceptance criteria was. And again, when we have those decisions and we've, they're able to see that and have that conversation. And so we definitely invite people from the client side, the client team to be involved in that. And again, it's, it's all about setting expectations. And so our expectation is that you'll 
be able to log in that you can see what we're working on. There's no, often the team will reach out and ask questions, but that's sort of all that we're expecting from client side is is to answer those questions in line so that way we have the dialogue as opposed to a, a string of emails that nobody's ever going to see. Yeah, keeping things out of emails, definitely my preference. I'd be interested to learn more about how your clients have enjoyed the transition to Agile and come along with you. They may or may not have any experience writing user stories, participating in some of the Scrum events. How have you managed to bring your clients along in that journey? And, and- <laughs> Yeah, so the the journey has been interesting. Uh, again, having not formally done this up until about two years ago, it's it's been a been sort of uh, try to bring them along the journey with me, as opposed to having years of experience having done this and saying, okay, these are like the ten years of experience that we're going to bring in, and this is how agile works, and being able to educate them through that with them learning alongside of us in a lot of ways has been helpful because it we're we're having the same understanding, we're having those conversations. It's very something something that's very fluid. And it's something that when they first hear it, they kind of look at you sideways and say, okay, I'm used to, we're going to do UAT and it's going to be a point in time and it's going to look like this and testing is going to happen right before it. And it's going to look like this. And so having those conversations and they, they kind of start to see, oh, I can see this more often. Oh, I like that. can actually have an impact on what we're going to develop next and what the actual end product is going to look like. That's that sounds cool too. And so from their perspective that they they engage more with it because they want to see it. They don't want you to go off for three months or six months and come back and say, hey, this is what I built for you. And they're like, well, I haven't seen you in six months. Hopefully everything's good. And so they're very much engaged with that. But as far as writing user stories, it's something that we've the first set of user stories were very much requirements-based and the system must do this, must do that, as opposed to as this person, I need to do this action and this is what I expect out of it. That's actually been this last project. Again, the, the, the client recently that wants to do Agile, their requirements came in that format. And so it's been an evolution, I think, that's going on in the industry and IT in general that we're now being able to benefit from a development side as well. Yeah, I I think it's important to remember that user stories are not meant to convey the entire requirement. They're just there as a reminder that this is roughly what we're looking for. And at some point when we prioritize that particular user story, we're going to have a further discussion about what's needed and what success looks like and what the acceptance criteria might be. I've seen people write a user story and then attach a specification to it. And it really becomes an old-fashioned requirements document. And that's what we're trying to avoid. Yeah. How do you manage that? So one of the, the clients that we had recently, they wanted us to come in and essentially do the discovery, right? And so it's it's sort of the old school waterfall and say, okay, what are our needs? And so uh, we said, yeah, we can totally do that. We can help uh, meet with the different departments and help sort of get you sort of that initial thing. But again, we're used to agile now. And so we get them 90% of the way there, but we don't say, okay, these are the seven different options. And this is why the seven different options are needed. We say, I think there's six of these options and we'll refine it as part of the product backlog grooming. I take a very similar approach. I call it a roadmap. And it's really about understanding those requirements at an epic level, chunking them up in such a way that they're, everybody's got a rough understanding of what's meant by you know sales order forecasting or customer complaint management. And the epic might be slightly, slightly smaller than that. You might break it up into chunks below that kind of level. And something like Visual Studio Team Services or Jira, you have these ideas of themes, features, epics, and stories becoming more and more granular. So you want to help your clients with a roadmap that it's somewhere at the feature epic level. And if you need to, I have sometimes taken the the highest priority epic and broken that down into user stories. So at least we have some granularity over the first thing that we could tackle in the first few sprints would be that epic. and, And there's its user stories. And then we try and forecast the time it would take to deliver all of that. 
again, just using planning poker and saying, well, let's let's use big numbers for these epics, and we'll, we'll stick to you know 20, 40, 60, and 100 as the, as the relative size of each of the epics. And we think our velocity is going to be, I don't know, 10 points per sprint. So there's a, a roadmap of how many weeks and sprints it would take. And if our project team is these six developers here, then the average cost is going to be, I don't know, 10 grand a week. So now we've got a rough order of magnitude of the cost of that project as well. Yeah, it was something that I thought was interesting on uh, one of your other podcasts that you talked about. How do you estimate Agile projects? So do you mind just doing a quick recap on how you estimate Agile projects? And when a fixed fee project comes in, how do you sort of pair your estimate against what a fixed fee would look like? Yeah, so I really use that relative estimation technique. So it's about not pretending to know that I know exactly how many hours um, a particular requirement is going to take to meet, but just that, you know, this one looks twice as big as that one or, or three times as big as that one. And then you have to really just take the one that seems most familiar to you based on your previous experience. Let's say it's sales order forecasting. That's a, a domain that's pretty well known to us. I understand enough about this client's requirements to say that that's roughly a 20-point epic. And then you, I estimate all the other epics relative to that one. And I come up with a set of epic-level user stories that are, yeah, it's 200 points in total. So there's 10 20-point epics. Then I take a look at my resource pool and go, hmm, if I had uh, Seth on my team and Charlie on my team and Susanna on my team, we could probably tackle 10 points per sprint. So 200 stories, 10 points a sprint, that's going to be 20 sprints. That's how I begin to then forecast a, a plan. But I try and I try and keep it at that high level. I don't make any pretense to say, you know, on Friday afternoon, 17 weeks from now, I know exactly what task Susanna is going to be doing. I don't, I try and avoid Gantt charts and I try and avoid long requirement specifications, keep everything at a, at a high level. Then we refine that roadmap after the first sprint or two. And if, if I'm pitching a proposal, this is great because I can just say, let's just do a proof of concept, conference room pilot, whatever you want to call it. Let's work together for a few weeks. We'll get to know each other a bit better. We're making a very short commitment, an inexpensive commitment, but we'll both learn a lot. We'll learn a lot about your requirements. Both of us will learn a lot about your requirements. You'll be, begin to assess the quality of our work, and together we'll figure out how fast we're able to go. And that will validate all the assumptions we just made in that discovery phase where we come up with this roadmap. And we might need to adjust it. We might find out that we can go faster, or we need to adjust it because we're not going to be able to deliver to the initial forecast. I find that that kind of approach goes over really well. So I've, I've delivered those roadmaps for several clients now, and it's something that, you know, big poster goes up on the wall. We know we can change it, and it's fluid, and it's it's an agile roadmap. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense, and I appreciate you kind of going through that again with me. It's something that when you talk agile and you go to the courses and stuff like that, I went to the two-day course, and they talked about, okay, out of these, did planning poker with dogs, right? So everybody has sort of an idea of what size this dog is. And it was interesting because nobody had the exact same numbers for everything, and so they had broken everybody down into different teams, but everybody had consistently the same ratio between the animals, which was really neat, and that's what you're kind of describing there. And then how do you then go from that concept to now, and this is where Agile kind of the, there's this missing piece from a, a partner's perspective or somebody that's going to implement a system and estimate a uh, level of effort. And I think even an IT department would value from, from this kind of concept is how do we tell the CEO, the CFO, the CIO that it's going to take us, it's going to take us three resources and it's going to take us six months to do this, to do all this stuff. And from a partner, you just then equate that to uh, sort of the cost as well. So and I appreciate that. And that's, I think, a great example. How do you approach when a client has a testing team and they want their testers to be a part of the team? 
So I think you've got you've alluded to this before and talked about it. If the if the individual is in the system itself, they should be a part of the dev team. Yeah. But if that tester has other projects, and I think this is where agile sometimes it's hard to do it through application because they have a the client has a whole testing team. They got five different individuals that work on all the different projects throughout the the city or the county or the state, and they do all the testing for everybody. And so they are coming in and out of the project. And how do you approach that? Are they a part of the dev team? Are they doing every sprint, doing a burn? Are they doing testing after a sprint? And what does that look like? I prefer to do in-sprint testing. So the people who are configuring and customizing dynamics should be really wrapping up most of their stories, maybe two-thirds of the way through the sprint. If it's a 10-day and a two-week um, sprint, we should be really mostly development complete by day six or seven. That gives us all time to do some some QA work, particularly the people with a QA background. They do most of it. They're maybe identifying some issues. They're giving us some feedback. We've got time to wrap those in and, and finish up the product, get it released into production or get it released into our next higher up environment, whether that's some kind of SIT environment or whatever. So definitely try and do that in sprint. The testers need to be involved. I like, like to see them writing test cases on day one, working with the people who've maybe got more of a business analyst background to sit in some of the refinement workshops. So we're, we're writing great acceptance criteria. They can ask questions from a tester's perspective, which quite often business analysts might miss. So I really want to see them involved as a, as a fully functioning part of our dev team. On my current project, we make no difference, right? We've got six people on each of our scrum squads. And the fact that some of them happen to come from a QA background, it makes no difference. They're they certainly bring some expertise to it, but everybody's responsible for the quality of the software. So if we see any kind of bug or, or defect during the course of the sprint, we'll go over, interrupt the developer who last touched that feature and say, hey, Seth, I've noticed this thing. You said it passed, but it hasn't. Can you fix it? And they'll together, the developer stops whatever they're doing and the tester will sit with them and they'll fix it together, test it again. And when it's cleared up, we're all good. But what we find is that the developers who whose quality isn't so good constantly get their work interrupted by other people and they don't like that. So they quickly get better and uh, make sure they do more of their own, their own kind of functional testing and unit testing. You did say that though, that you may not have dedicated resources. My approach that I propose there really requires dedicated resources. So that can be tough. If you don't have that, then you're going to need to provide your own from within the team. And then the client can do their testing later in that higher up environment in the SIT or UAT environment later. Yeah, two things you alluded to there and mentioned sort of that approach, I think, is having that dedicated developer. And so if you have a dedicated person on your team that's configuring, whether that's a client resource or whether that's a partner or somebody external, the fact that they're a dedicated resource, they're actively working on something. So for them to get interrupted shouldn't be a big deal. And so if there's an external tester, and again, we'll come back to that term in a minute, but an external person coming in and interrupting somebody that's full-time on this project, that's just part of it. Maybe that's just part of sort of the change there. Uh, and then the other part of that is as soon as you start saying, okay, well, this person is a tester, all of a sudden you're labeling people on what they do and what they should do and what they can't do. And with Agile, it's really that whole team's responsible for the quality of this work. And I think that's where we've seen the biggest improvement is the ultimate quality that comes out when a team is sees it as a team effort and not, oh, this was uh, this was Neil's fault. This Neil was the last one to touch this or Neil's the one that worked on that item. And no, it's, hey, our team is responsible for this and the quality of this, this product that comes out. Uh, that goes so much further which I think is is an awesome thing, a part of the agile approach. Yeah, and a good Scrum Master will will protect the anonymity of individuals who maybe worked on, on particular features. So I definitely encourage all my teams to adopt that team accountability approach. One of the other questions I want to ask you while I, while I have you is from a client side. So what are the benefits for a client to go agile? 
Yeah, so I have probably four or five benefits that my clients see from from the Agile projects. One of them is that lowered risk because we can tackle those risky requirements pretty early in the project and de-risk them, right? What's it? We think it's going to be really tricky to integrate with that you know, third-party system. Well, let's tackle that in the first couple of sprints, do a proof of concept. It's not going to be complete, but we're going to figure out if it's possible. And if it is possible, how much extra effort is required to finish it off. If we take a traditional approach, that kind of piece of work might be done halfway through or towards the end of the development phase. If it blows up and takes a lot more effort than we initially estimated, then we're kind of stuffed because we've made all sorts of commitments and put our forecasts in place. So it's less risky from that point of view. I also think it's more transparent because we've got frequent opportunities for inspection and adaptation. There's the, the daily scrum, so you get it. Maybe not a status report out of that, but you get a pretty healthy sense of the team's progress throughout the course of the sprint. And then at the end of the sprint, Every couple of weeks, you get a chance to inspect that Dynamics 365 system that's in development, and you get a real chance to say, well, yeah, it's, it's tracking well, it's meeting our expectations of where it should be right now. It gives the client a lot more transparency into what we're up to and, and where we're headed. The other, third thing is, is the level of control that the client has. Instead of all the control being inside a requirement specification that was agreed by both parties a year ago, it's fluid, and the client's got control over the scope and over the budget and uh, over the quality as well to some extent. So I think clients really appreciate when you put the control back into their hands. So those are probably the main benefits that clients see. And then if we're doing a good job, once you get some experience with Agile, I think it's I think it's quicker. I think you can deliver the same software for less because what we don't do is spend a lot of time at the start of the project analyzing requirements and designing features that we end up you know, throwing out and, and not implementing. We actually just analyze and design in, in time to deliver it. And therefore, there's less waste as well. So I don't spend a lot of effort documenting stuff that never saw the light of day. So for that reason, it can be a slightly lower cost as well. Very nice. Yeah, I think the other thing, it's been interesting, especially with public sector clients, is that you have a defined implementation period. So we're going to deliver by April 1st. We're going to have support for four months, five months, six months, whatever it is. And then how do we, how do you encourage sort of this agile approach to continue after the initial engagement? And again, it's uh, agile is this concept that you continually are developing and, and moving forward. How do you approach that? So there's a couple of ways you can you can keep either keep going forever <laughs> for the scrum team. You transition that scrum team to maybe bring in some of the clients' personnel as a Microsoft partner. You maybe roll off a couple of your individuals. Some of the clients' team come on board, and whether that's from the business kind of user community from the clients' organization or the IT organization, that's kind of up to them and, and you to figure that out. But it might be a much lower pace that you go at. So if you were previously delivering 100 points of value every sprint, now we've disbanded most of the team. We've just got two or three people left. So we're going to deliver 10. And that might just be a couple of enhancements, some bug fixes. And what we also need to factor in these days is the updates that are coming from Microsoft. If I keep my Scrum team going, I can continually test the early updates that get applied to my sandbox before the same update gets applied to my production system. I've seen some teams switch to Kanban, if you're familiar with that, as an alternative agile approach for managing ongoing work. Yeah, no, I think that's a great sort of example of how you're doing business applications, especially with dynamics. And I think it'd be an awesome podcast for you to dive deeper into that. I'm looking at a, a first big release into production. We're going to do a small release in, in February. The first big release into production where all the users are going to come on board is in May next year. That's like four weeks after the Microsoft update comes out in April. 
we're a little nervous right now because we don't know what's going to be in that update and we don't know what testing we're going to have to do to um, you know make sure that things rock solid whenever we release it in May and that's into you know we've got about 1500 contact center agents serving one and a half million members and that's a lot of phone calls and we need to you know make sure we can handle all of that and there's going to be a big Microsoft update just a few weeks before we go live so yeah we're certainly trying to figure out how to plan for that and how to adapt our backlog for that and make sure we're prepared for it yeah you almost miss the the good old days where they release it every two years or every three years <laughs> no i don't miss that at all i remember some of those and yeah that was those are crazy days software today is continually being updated and you know i look at my phone and there's a slew of updates every night and i just i click next and apply them all and i expect them all to work dynamics is getting close to that at least let's hope so at least. <laughs> yeah exactly i think the other thing it's, it's my role really is to how do you as a client approach these things and so it, it's great from a partner's perspective you can use agile it's part of implementations but how do you when the partner's left and you've done the implementation how do you manage things? And I think the agile approach is something that as part of the training that we do for that new system administrator, it's something I encourage is for your sanity and to do is have monthly releases. And so when somebody submits a ticket, they know it's going to be worked on and it's going to be evaluated for priority. And then once they've, the business user has understood and heard that, it's going to be the next sprint. Well, Seth, every time I've tried to answer one of your questions as best I can, you come back at me with, oh, but that's just help me think of two more things. So uh, I think we could be here for quite a while yet. Why don't we reschedule for another time on the show? It's been great to have you. I really appreciate you being part of the customer community and helping transform how all the Microsoft customers and partners implement Dynamics 365. So I hope you'll come back on the show at a future time. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. It's been great being a part of sort of this community. I, I love the leadership that you're giving to this community. It's it's something that everybody, it's one of those buzzwords that everybody hears about, but doesn't know exactly how to do it. And you're showing us how to put action to it. And it's very much appreciate the opportunity to be on this podcast and the opportunity to connect with you and sort of pick your brain for the last hour. Just one-on-one. That's awesome. My pleasure. Okay, Seth, no, we'll catch you soon. Thanks so much. Our mission is to have every Microsoft Dynamics 365 project succeed using Scrum. If you'd like to learn more about Scrum and become a certified professional Scrum Master, visit crm.audio slash Scrum Dynamics to get discounted access to the introduction to Scrum from Microsoft Dynamics 365 course. The course features videos, worksheets, quizzes, and a practice assessment for the professional Scrum Master certification exam. It covers the theory of Scrum, its events, roles, and deliverables, as well as lessons learned through Scrum for Dynamics CRM case study projects. CRM Audio podcast listeners can get discounted access by visiting crm.audio slash scrumdynamics. Dynamics.